I'm delighted to be asked to talk about Dickens and railways, since the two in my mind are very closely connected um, with my youth. Um, my earliest memory of pleasure in Dickens is of sitting on a train coming into New Street Station in Birmingham. And I'd found myself reading about the death of little Joe in Bleak House. And as the train entered the tunnel just before you get into New Street, and I arrived at little Joe saying those comfortable words to the Dr. Woodcourt as he's dying, and tears trickling down my 17-year-old cheeks. And when the train came into New Street and stopped, I didn't get up and kept my seat because I thought this is just too embarrassing for words. <laughs> uh, and when everybody had gone, I wiped my eyes and went out. Now, my pleasure, the pleasure I took in Dickens then has remained with me some decades later, and so I'm very pleased to be able to talk about Dickens and railways today. We're going to start with Elizabeth Gaskell in Cranford. In the second chapter of the stories, you remember, we are told that Captain Brown, as the maid Jenny comes into the room and shouts, the Captain Brown has been killed by them nasty, cruel railroads. And the newspaper report of the time is that Captain Brown had been deeply engaged in the perusal of a number of Pickwick, which he had just received. Now, this is a little joke. Elizabeth Gaskell was publishing Cranford in Dickens's own periodical Household Words. And so the idea of the sort of tribute that Captain Brown is so deep in the latest number of Pickwick that he doesn't realize the train is upon him. It brings together our subject, the greatest novelist of the age and the greatest phenomenon of the age. When Mrs. Gaskell dispatched Captain Brown to death under the wheels of a train, Britain had almost 6,600 miles of railway and a highly developed railway system. Less than 20 years earlier, almost none of it had existed. We think of uh, early Dickens and the Pickwickians as coaching everywhere, but the heyday of the coaching age was really quite short, end of the 18th century up to about 1830. The Pickwickians, they travel by coach, but very soon they would have chosen the train. I think the speed and the scale of the development are both astonishing. It literally changed the face of the country, the tunnels, viaducts, uh, cuttings. And those of you who have been to the exhibition that Clive mentioned um, will have seen particularly Bourne's wonderful uh, drawings of the enormous engineering feats that went to, to the creation of the new railway. Breathtakingly ambitious. There were also enormous and complex implications in the coming of this new phenomenon. The sheer scale of the organisation required to create a network. The opportunities for employment offered. 
competition growing between the companies and between towns and cities as railway stations became sources of civic pride. Think of all the great termini that we all know. And then think of the little village termini too. Uh, never termini, sorry, the little village stations we know. And the competition that ensued between architectural styles, should it be classical, Gothic, Italianate. The railway, 20, 25 years, changed the face of the country and one sense of the country. In 1835, Dickens, Wordsworth, wants to take his family to Bath. What do they do? They take the train from Lancaster to Birmingham where they pick up a coach as early as 1835. By 1850, Dickens is coming back from Paris to London in 12 hours. The steam locomotive was the transformative power of the century and it figures, of course, throughout in the fiction with which we're all familiar. And before we turn to Dickens, I just want to touch on one or two other examples of railways in novels. We might think about what it signifies. In Middlemarch, which is, of course, written late in the century, but set in 1831 and 2, what George Eliot highlights is intrusiveness. She depicts resistance to the menace of the railways when the agricultural labourers attack the company surveyors. And she has down-to-earth Caleb Garth warn them, now, my lads, you can't hinder the railroad. It will be made whether you like it or not. How very true. In the very early 1840s, Wordsworth was at the head of a group trying to prevent a railway being built where? Through the grounds of Furness Abbey. But they lost and the railway is still there. In Tessa the D'Urbervilles, what Hardy dwells on is the idea of the railway as a connector. You remember the wonderful scene where um, Tess uh, and Angel are taking the milk to the railway halls. And Tess thinks, isn't it strange to think that people we'll never know and never see will be drinking this tomorrow morning? They, they go along and they take it to, I quote, a spot where, by day, a fitful white streak of steam at intervals upon the dark green background denoted intermittent moments of contact between their secluded world and modern life. They reached the feeble light which came from the smoky lamp of the little railway station, a poor enough terrestrial star, yet in one sense of more importance to Talbothay's dairy and mankind than the celestial ones to which it stood in such humiliating contrast. Speed. If there's anyone here who hasn't read Mary Elizabeth Braddon's best-selling sensation novel, Lady Audley's Secret, let me urge you to do so. And in this novel, it's speed that counts. The devious Lady Audley 
can get from home to London and back, during which time she's going to destroy some incriminating evidence without anybody knowing. The railway is making new possibilities of action. And finally, um, North and South. North and South, Elizabeth Gaskell's fine novel. You remember there what matters, it's of greatest importance, is that the railway station itself is a site of sort of anonymity and possible exposure. The heroine of the story, Margaret Hale, accompanies her brother at night to a railway station. He's not supposed to be there at all. She's got to get him out of the country. This is a public place where anonymous crowds come and go. And it's no place for a woman. And Gaskell describes how she has to be aware of men staring at her with undisguised admiration. And her being there at all is misinterpreted by the one man who matters, Mr. Thornton, who loves her. Now, Dickens, um, as we might expect, was highly attentive to all aspects of the new phenomenon, both good and bad. On the one hand, he was in awe of the complexity of the logistical uh, organization the engineering feats embodied in the thousands of miles of rail, and locomotives which had names like Vulcan, Apollo, Lightning, Wildfire, and Dragon. But he was also overwhelmed by the human endeavor, the vast joint effort of porters, ticket collectors, lamp men, signal men, linesmen, drivers, stokers, and so on. And in the Christmas number of All the Year Round in 1866, uh, Mugby Junction, his long story, is a sort of paean to this, this new world and its meaning. On the other hand, Dickens the journalist was acutely alive to what would affect his readers most directly. He seems to have had an obsession with refreshment rooms uh, and in all the year round in, Martin, in 1960, there's a tremendous diatribe getting it off his chest. Refreshment rooms on a railway station, they always behave as if they don't expect any passengers. They stock the kind of stuff you can't eat. I cannot dine, he says, on stale sponge cakes that turn to sand in the mouth. I think the line between that all the year round and brief encounter is very quick, don't you? Um, he also had very strong views about Bradshaw's railway guide. Now, you know about Bradshaw right from very early on, Bradshaw's railway guide. Right, late in the century, here's uh, again and again, Holmes, says Watson. I believe, uh, glancing at my Bradshaw, there's a train at 11.30, fine. Hail a cab, no problem, Bradshaw. Dickens, on the other hand, gives you in Household Words a passage called A Narrative of Extraordinary Suffering. This is a traveller, who of course is called Mr. Lost, who's trying to make his way round Britain with Bradshaw. And in the end, he, he, he suffers the deadening of his intelligence and the loss of his faculties. And he ends up 
lost in a London hotel, a ruin. His wife comes in and sees him, John, John, what's the matter? Come home. But he sits there, continually turning over the leaves of a small dog-eared quarto volume with a yellow cover and babbling in a plaintive voice, Bradshaw, Bradshaw. <laughs> Nobody knows what he means, says Dickens. <laughs> now, Dickens's imaginative engagement with railways is most richly evident in Dombey and Son, of course, written at the height of the 1840s railway boom. The, the novel highlights uh, the sheer scale and progressive momentum of what is taking place. And that's um, obvious in the two great set pieces in the novel on Stags's Gardens. You will recall um, Polly Toodle and Susan Nipper take the little Paul Dombey to, to uh, where Polly Toodle comes from, which is this slum property in Camden Town called Stags's Gardens. But already, the London and Birmingham railway line is beginning to dig its way through Stags's Gardens. The first shock of a great earthquake had, just at that period, rent the whole neighbourhood to its centre. Traces of its course were visible on every side. Houses were knocked down, streets broken through and stopped. Deep pits and trenches dug in the ground. Enormous heaps of earth and clay thrown up. Buildings that were undermined and shaking, propped by great beams of wood. Here, a chaos of carts overthrown and jumbled together lay topsy-turvy at the bottom of a steep, unnatural hill. There, confused treasures of iron soaked and rusted in something that had accidentally become a pond. Everywhere were bridges that led nowhere, thoroughfares that were wholly impassable, and so on. Now, the, this is a very interesting passage, and there are two long paragraphs, which we will not have time to, to read in, in detail, in which Dickens conveys his sense of bewilderment, the kind of unnatural conflict of materials and shapes before him. The neighbourhood, though, is reluctant. The general belief in the railroad was very slow. There were frowsy fields and cowhouses and dunghills and dust heaps and ditches and gardens and summer houses and carpet beating grounds at the very door of the railway. Posts and rails and old cautions to trespassers and backs of mean houses and patches of rigid vegetation stared it out of countenance. Nothing was the better for it or thought of being so. Dickens now plays a little riff on the origins of Stags's gardens. And be that as it may, his historical suggestions. Stags's gardens was regarded by its population as a sacred grove 
not to be withered by railroads. And so confident were they generally of its long outliving any such ridiculous inventions that the master chimney sweeper at the corner, who was understood to take the lead in local politics, had publicly declared that on the occasion of the railroad opening, if ever it did open, two of his boys should ascend the flues of his dwelling with instructions to hail the failure with derisive jeers from the very chimney pots. Right. When we go back to Stags's gardens, later in the novel, how different. As to the railroad, which had hesitated to acknowledge, as to the neighbourhood, which had hesitated to acknowledge the railroad in its straggling days, that had grown wise and penitent. There were railway patterns in drapers' shops and railway journals in the windows of its newsmen. There were railway hotels, office houses, lodging houses, boarding houses, railway plans, maps, views, wrappers, bottles and sandwich boxes, and timetables. Railway hackney coach and cab stands, railway omnibuses, railway streets and buildings, railway hangers on. There was even railway time observed in clocks, as if the sun itself had given in. Among the vanquished was the master chimney sweeper, Hoylo, incredulous at Stags's gardens, who now lived in a stuccoed house three stories high and gave himself out with golden flourishes upon a varnished board as contractor for the cleansing of the railway by machinery. Now, the railway has brought employment, it's brought prosperity, it's brought a new hope. Now, these are justly famous passages, the Stags's gardens passages. What I want to look at now um, are two scenes which, which are less showy, but which I think also exhibit Dickens's astonishingly intelligent and kind of humane and sensitive response to this emerging phenomenon. I want to consider the two appearances of Mr. Toodle. Mr. Toodle, you will recall, is the husband of the woman, Polly, taken on by Mr. Dombey to be a wet nurse for the infant Paul. And we're going to pick up the scene where Miss Tox, who's a sort of hanger-on with an eye on becoming the second Mrs. Dombey, brings in Polly Toodle Mr. Toodle and five little Toodles. <clears throat> Miss Tox introduces them to Mr. Dombey. Five children, youngest six weeks. The fine little boy with the blister on his nose is the eldest. The blister, I believe, said Miss Tox, looking round upon the family, is not constitutional, but accidental. The apple-faced man, that's Mr. Toodle, was understood to growl. I beg your pardon, sir, said Miss Tox. Did you? Flat iron, he repeated. Oh, yes, said Miss Tox. Yes, quite true, I forgot. The little creature, in his mother's absence, smelt a warm flat iron. 
You're quite right, sir. Um, you were going to have the goodness to inform me when we arrived at the door that you, you were by trader Stoker. A joker? said Miss Tox, quite aghast. Stoker, said the man. Steam engine. Oh, yes, returned Miss Tox, looking thoughtfully at him and steaming still to have but a very imperfect understanding of his meaning. And how do you like it, sir? Which mum? said the man. That, replied Miss Tox, your trade. Oh, pretty well, mum. The ashes gets in here sometimes, he said, touching his chest, and makes a man speak gruff, uh, as at the present time. But it is ashes, mum, not crustiness. <laughs> now, Mr. Toodle has been a miner, formerly a miner, but now he's bettered himself by entering the employment of one of the new railway companies. By the end of the century, 5% of the population was working for the British railway companies. And this is a very big phenomenon because the companies insisted on education tests and standards of behaviour and cleanliness and dress and so on from their employees. Mr. Toodle is determined to learn to read from his children so that he uh, can secure promotion. He's also, of course, the father of five blooming children. Now, the second appearance of Mr. Toodle comes when Mr. Dombey and Major Bagstock are on their way to Leamington Spa by rail. During the bustle of preparation at the railway, Mr. Dombey and the Major walked up and down the platform side by side. Neither of the two observed that in the course of these walks, they attracted the attention of a working man who was standing near the engine and who touched his hat every time they passed, for Mr. Dombey habitually looked over the vulgar herd, not at them. At length, however, this man stepped before them as they turned round, and pulling his hat off and keeping it off, ducked his head to Mr. Dombey. Beg your pardon, sir, said the man, but I hope you're a doing pretty well, sir. He was dressed in a canvas suit, abundantly besmeared with coal dust and oil, and had cinders in his whiskers, and a smell of half-slaked ashes all over him. He was not a bad-looking fellow, nor even what could fairly be called a dirty-looking fellow in spite of this, and in short, he was Mr. Toodle, professionally clothed. "'I shall have the honour of stoking you down, sir,' said Mr. Toodle, Beg your pardon, sir, I hope you find yourself a coming round. Mr. Dombey looked at him in return for his tone of interest, as if a man like that would make his very eyesight dirty. Excuse the liberty, sir, said T Toodle, seeing he was not clearly remembered, but my wife Polly... A change in Mr. Dombey's face which seemed to express a recollection of him, and so it did, but it expressed in a much stronger degree of an angry sense of humiliation, stopped Mr. Toodle short. Your wife wants money, I suppose, said Mr. Dombey, 
putting his hand in his pocket and speaking haughtily. <coughs> no, thank you, sir, returned Toodle. I can't say she does. I don't. Mr Dombey was stopped short now in his turn and awkwardly with his hand in his pocket. No, sir, said Toodle, turning his oilskin cap round and round. We're doing pretty well, sir. We haven't no cause to complain in a worldly way. Now, I want you to think for a moment of that wonderful picture by W.P. Frith of the railway station where so much is going on. This could be a little scene just on the edge of that picture. It's full of significance. Here's Mr. Dombey, so convinced that the only address a man like Toodle could give him was because he wanted money. But also there's the, which is of course Dombey's way of handling everything. But there's also the social question. In that first meeting, between Mr. Dombey and Mr. Toodle, it takes place on Dombey's ground, his forbidding freezing house. Dombey is in control and wholly dismissive of Toodle and his world. He won't accept the name. Polly Toodle has to become Mrs. Richards. You can't have a name like Toodle in the house. And Mr. Dombey insists that the employment he gives to the wet nurse must be solely a question of wages. Nothing more. This second meeting, how different. Now we're in Mr. Toodle's world. All around is the hustle and bustle of travellers and railway workers. It's a new world. Mr. Dombey is ill at ease in it. Of course there's class division. Mr. Toodle is going to stoke Mr. Dombey down. But there's no doubt that in this scene, Mr. Toodle is the future. He has dignity considerable standing, and also, you will recall, he exhibits decent, common humanity. What horrifies Mr. Dombey is to see that Toodle is wearing a black band. He's still thinking it right to mourn for little Paul. This man, Dombey has to think, is in competition with him for grief over his son. It's the democratic, the new world coming in, in which Dombey is beginning to see the old. The railway, however, is democratic in another sense, and Dickens was extremely conscious of this. We won't have time to read the four strange, violent paragraphs from Dombey and Son, all about how the, the railway train is a power that forced itself upon its iron way, defiant of all paths and roads, piercing through the heart of every obstacle and dragging living creatures of all classes, ages and degrees behind it. It is a type of the triumphant monster, death. In Dombey and Son, you remember Dickens dispatches the villainous Mr. Carker to death on the railway when, misjudging his moment, Carker is seized, beaten up, caught up, whirled away, struck from limb to limb, 
and mutilated as his, the fragments of his body are thrown in the air. And it's, Trollope does the same thing in The Prime Minister when Ferdinand Lopez decides to kill himself stepping in front of a train. I'm hastening to the end. Um, uh, I know we mustn't go over the one half hour, but I just want to conclude with this. Death, the railway as a type of death. It's an eerie premonition, that, in Dombian's son, of what very nearly happened to Dicking himself. It's an event that brought life and art together. In June 1865, Dickens was returning from Paris through Folkestone on the Tidal Express when he was involved in um, an enormous accident. The foreman of the plate layers who were repairing the line had misread the timetable. This is important. And had lifted, lifted the rails on a bridge cross, crossing the river. The train comes thundering along goes over. Three of the coaches hung there, including one with Dickens in it. Ten people were killed, 14 were badly injured. And Dickens was, was heroic. In, in long letter he wrote, immediate, almost immediately afterwards, he, he describes helping a man with his head so gashed, Dickens couldn't bear to look at him, and tried to pour some water on his face, but the man died as Dickens was doing it. There was another lady that Dickens helped with a sip of brandy, and he laid her down, and when he turned around, she was dead. But he was also amazingly cool. Dickens clambered back, up and into the railway coach to retrieve something. And what it was, was the 16th number of his current novel, Our Mutual Friend. When the novel was completed and Dickens issued it in single volume form, he added a postscript which brought life and art together by playing with the conceit that the characters in the story were themselves in the accident. Mr. and Mrs. Lammel, he said, were much soiled but otherwise unhurt. It's typically Dickens, I think, making something imaginative and humorous out of what was, in this case, something very terrible. But in fact, he was profoundly shaken. And the final sentence of the postscript to our mutual friend acknowledges it. I remember, Dickens writes, I remember with devout thankfulness that I can never be much nearer parting company with my readers forever than I was then until there shall be written against my life the two words with which I have this day closed this book. The two words were, the end. <laughs> and with them I will end too. <laughs>